Welcome to the Vet Podcast with Brendan and Mark, the Vet Gurus, and you can contact us and get all our show notes at vetgurus.com or email us at vetgurus at gmail.com. So welcome to the podcast for the weekend in January the 12th, January the 12th, 2008, already halfway through January, Mark, and I'll tell you what, we had a very hot um, weekend uh, last weekend here in Melbourne, and I think the weather got to your side as well. Interestingly enough, we did see a few patients with, with heat stroke and um, I think people sometimes forget um, that we can see heat stroke in pets that we may think cope pretty well with heat. And and, and the first case um, I'll briefly mention is a bitter dragon um, that um, Lizzie, my colleague, saw on Saturday and I think the temperature got up to 42 degrees Celsius on Saturday. And... Um, came in open mouth breathing and looking like it was wanting to die. Um, basic workup was done on it, including um, full bloods. And um, the main thing that was out, as far as I can remember, was the blood glucose was super high. I think it was about 30, um, which I think the normal range is only up to about um, 15 or something like that um, in metric units. And uh, Lizzie just gave it some um, basic supportive care before we got all the bloods back from the lab. And um, I saw it on the revisit on um, Monday and it was a much happier lizard. And I read through the history and I looked at it and I thought, gee, this sounds a lot like a, a um, heat stroke, this particular um, little lizard. And um, I quizzed the owner. In fact, the owner beat me to it because I was going to quiz the owner and, and she said, oh, I think we've had a bit of a problem with our with our temperature in our house and um, the enclosure. I don't think the thermostat reads very well. Um, and the house got up to 35 degrees and I think the thermostat doesn't work as well. So um, um, I took blood from it again just to do a, a quick um, repeat blood glucose on it on um, Monday and it was back down to about 14 or so. So when it was a much happier little lizard. Um, and the second one was a ferret that I think we saw that um, potentially had heat stroke. So have you had any sort of heat stroke episodes up, up your way, Mark, with the, with the high temperatures we've had? Well, I certainly don't want to get into a, you know, our temperature was higher than yours, but um, we had two days uh, yesterday and the day before where we were at um, 46 degrees, just shy of the 47.3 at, um, at Penrith. And we have had... Um, a whole bunch of um, wild animals and uh, pets um, that have been dealing with the heat not very well, and we've actually had um, a few of them pass away. So um, it, it's uh, it's been a particularly frustrating and difficult time. Species that we uh, had the most trouble with was um, uh, was a, a ringtail possum, in fact, um, uh, which just. Uh, young male uh, obviously um, hasn't established a territory, uh, probably a little bit um, beaten up by fights with older males, um, and uh, he was just standing in the middle of the lawn, um, and uh, people were able to pick him up and uh, wrap him up and bring him in. His body temperature was um, over uh, 42 degrees, and unfortunately, despite um, carefully actively cooling him, um, we were unable to save his life. We, um, so, sorry, I, I didn't um, jump in there. I was just checking the conversion for the temperatures there. Yeah, 46 degrees Celsius is a 114.8 Fahrenheit, so it's quite warm. Um, yeah, we certainly didn't get it as warm as that, but we 
we we see a, a fair number of possums during summer that um, end up basically falling out of the trees um, and occasionally um, koalas as well. So that's a true drop bear, Mark. There you go, um, falling out of the tree. Um, so, yeah, pretty hot. So, um, yeah, interesting. But I, I just think it was – it just – made me think gee um we've got a species like a desert species like a bearded dragon that um you know obviously can can get heat stress so don't you know we've got to be careful not to become blinkered when we um um see an animal that we think may not get some particular condition with them so yeah so that's sort of my news this week apart from um getting back to a full week of um work this week as well um any interest in other sort of cases you've seen in the last day or two mate um the main thing we've had a uh, um besides i suppose that we've been overwhelmed with those uh heat cases um but we've had a a couple of um uh, complicated surgeries that uh um haven't gone quite as we'd hoped um we had a a uh, um an eclectus parrot uh, that um we we that had unfortunately fractured its humerus, and um, and normally we find those ones relatively straightforward procedures to um, to place a tie and fix a tour. Um, in this particular case, the the, uh, the 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 original fracture had occurred some time ago, and so um, <laughs> it did take a little bit of time to get it entirely stable. But um, pleasingly, that bird looks great today. Good. Um, the um, I was going to make a very corny joke there that that's not hu- that's not very funny um, a humor humorous fracture but you know obviously the time has gone and timing is everything isn't it with with, with comedy <laughs> so I think I'll I'll move on I'll move on yeah um, well our shout out this week is to is to Rita in Portugal um, one of our listeners in in Portugal has sent us a. Uh, hello um, from our, what was it, our Facebook site there. So hi to Rita um, and all our listeners in, in Portugal. Um, I think we have four, no, five um, news items this week, Mark, and you wanted to kick off with the first one, which is um, about pumas. Is that is that the article you wanted to chat about first? It is. Um, I, I am always on the lookout for um, one of Kate's um uh, favorite animals uh, our cats that live at home um and so she's always looking at um uh you know cat friendly practice ideas and um and so uh anything that um gives us a bit of an idea about how do our domestic cats fit in with you know behaviorally with maybe some of their wild counterparts i always find really interesting and um the mother nature network outlines a, a, a bit of research that um that placed uh tracking collars on uh, the wild cat of North America, the cougar or puma, um, and, um, and tracked where they slept. Um, uh, they, the, the, the basic premise was that there's a lot of um, research about their interactions with other um, top-end predators, the grizzly bears and the, um, and the uh, uh, other animals that... Um, that roam the American wilderness, um, wolves, and uh, um, and they really, um, in some respects, struggle against those species. Um, but um, the interactions with them are, are quite well recorded. But what the pumas do to stay out of those interactions is not so well known. Um, and surprise, not not unsurprisingly, they behave a lot like our domestic cats in the way that they search out. Um, 
bedsites, they spend an awful lot of time of their day um, sleeping um, and just like our domestic cats um, perching um, you know, in uh, high up on uh, the top of bookshelves or disappearing into little tears underneath the um, uh, the, um, the, uh, the lounge and into the structure of the lounge, the, um, the, these wild pumas um, would search out the relatively um, difficult locations with that, uh, that left them relatively well concealed, making them real, really quite cryptic animals. Um, they, they gravitate to specific hidden bed sites where it would be hard for competing um, like species or um, different species to, um, to find them. Um, and, uh, and so I found that really fascinating that um, they searched for warmth, secrecy and escape routes um, and often chose relatively like tight and, um, you know, I, I think if you could put a box out there, um, they probably would crawl in it. There, um, yeah, it was a. I just read through that article then, and it was um, quite interesting. It was a good study. I mean, that was from just reading one of the lines there from 2012 to 2016. The researchers uh, used GPS collars to identify about 600 puma bed sites, and then studied each site. So, a, a good number of um, sites, and some, you know, it's, it's, a, it's what four or five years that they spent. Um, doing that so yeah it was quite interesting and there's some i think that was from the mother nature network one of our favorite sites that we um link to and there's some very good pictures there too mark um i don't know where you saw those pics there um, i was, I was just, particularly the, the the fascinating one was the um the uh the wild puma that was napping in a bathroom at um the chatsworth nature preserve in california and i was also interested in that they um they particularly noted that um, many of the resting bed sites were on south-facing slopes where the warmth of the sun is strongest. And once again, um, if I had to place a guess, I would have thought that they would have um, they would have looked for spots that kept them hidden but allowed them to uh, maximise their exposure to sun rays. Yes. Yes, no, it's a it's a good article. Um, uh, news item number two is back home for us. It's a Australian one. It's from um, although it was reported in the Guardian, and that is dozens of snake eggs found in Australian school sandpit. And you may have already seen this one, Mark. I don't know whether you have. Um, students at a school on the New South Wales mid north coast have learned a val- valuable lesson. Sandpits make great snake nests. Um, fortunately, this time of the year, it's a school holiday, so I don't think any um, kids were at the school there. But wildlife rescuers were shocked when a call to remove about a dozen eggs from a sand pit at a school near the coastal town of Loriton, 350 kilometres north of Sydney, became rather more dramatic. Um, they were widely reported as belonging to the eastern brown snake, which is quite funny because they, they they talk a lot about the article, debate about, yeah, what eggs they were and saying that they couldn't identify the eggs um, and um, mentioning that there was big posts on Facebook between people and you know that the sorts of um, posts that get put on Facebook, there'd be all sorts of claims about different species um, um, of those eggs um, just by looking at a picture. Um, and the interesting thing that you'll find, Mark, is that um, because I don't think you've seen this um, little report, is um, 
Um, going further down in the report, Brian Fry, who specialises in venomous animals and is an associate professor at University of Queensland School of Biological Sciences, confirmed at least part of the story. And I loved what Brian said, and Brian's a very famous um, um, herpetologist. Um, um, they're definitely snake eggs, is what Brian said. <laughs> in an email after inspecting the photos and good on him that's what I'd say um, and he went on to say but it's impossible to say which species until they hatch so um, good on you Brian I love that um, so and then it just talks about the um, that the snakes or the sand pit and it must have thought that's a good site to lay the eggs and talks a little bit about um, brown snakes as well even though eastern brown snakes even though they haven't confirmed um um, what ones they are and I think they said they were going to try and incubate the eggs and, and see what species um, turn up there so I thought that was a quite little uh, fun little report well, Another I, might one sort a, of Christmas. I might have a little bit of um, additional insight into that story and um, and as you might realise Loriton is um, is only yeah, uh, um, 100 and, 140 clicks up the road from us um, but we have a good network of uh, of uh, wildlife carers and um, and I'll have to now that you've made this like a, a a public item on our podcast I'll have to double check the veracity but I was recently told that those eggs hatched out um, only a couple of weeks ago and were eastern water dragons so um, so yeah I'm not surprised that the result of the hatching hasn't been made as public as the uh, the original finding of the eggs and and while I have the highest respect for um, Brian, I'm a great fan of his uh, his work and his stories. I, in this instance, I think he may well have just um, overstated. His confidence might have been overstated. <laughs> um, well, we'll have to um, contact the Guardian then, or you and Mark, and um, update them on the story and see if they publish it. Yes, yeah, so you'll have to get back to us, and we'll remember that for um, our podcast next week. Um, so. Um, Story, oh, here we go, story number three. Um, what have you got for me, Mark? Well, this is one I particularly picked out for you, Brendan. It just seemed to carry all the threads that I thought um, would uh, would draw your eyes to it. So the article is another one in the Mother Nature Network and um, and it's uh, from the 2nd of January this year. Um, and it uh, talks, it's an article that talks about the animal inspirations behind the newest Star Wars creatures. And I thought you would just be wrapped in this. In particular, in particular, one that caught my eye, and I've, I've followed this story a little bit because, um, well, as you know, I have a vague interest in uh, um, birds and um, and I, I was very interested in the story of the development of the um, – now, now I'm a bit of a – um, uh, Star Wars newbie, so if I pronounce these incorrectly, then you know, just straighten me out there, Brendan. Um, the Porgs, the Porgs apparently are, um, uh, you know, not having seen it, I can't tell, but I think they 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 play a bit of a starring role in the new movie, um, and they the way that they um they came to be part of the movie is is quite interesting. Um, uh, the um, original. Um, island, the, um, the while they were filming on um, the Skellig Michael Island off the coast of Ireland, um, they were looking to get particular landscapes and they got this wonderful um, island which stands in for one of the alien planets. I think it's called Akto. Um, 
but the island was covered in the um, the wonderful small seabirds called puffins, um, and they got some beautiful footage, which which would have worked great in the movie. But um, they couldn't digitally remove the um, the puffins, so they found it much more easy to convert them to porgs. So. Um, that's how the porgs came to life after um, trying to, you know, take inspiration from a, a seabird coming up with a seal and a pug dog and the puffin all rolled into one, um, and we ended up with the porg. Yes, and not trying to give away any spoilers for people who have have not seen the um, the Last Jedi, um, the that particular island, Skellig Michael, which is off the coast of Ireland, um, is where Luke Skywalker um, is stationed. I suppose is the best way of, of, of putting it. And um, interestingly enough, um, I did read in a separate news article somewhere. I have to try and pull it up, maybe for another um, next week. Um, that that little um, island is struggling now because there's so many people who want to go and visit it, and it's only very small island so they're trying to limit tourist numbers to that island now because of all these star wars fans that are wanting to go there and um have a look at a puffin or maybe even a porg um (laughs) they think they might be seen there but um yeah yeah porgs um it's not a not a spoiler for the movie but porgs were basically a little um cameo sort of part the cutie little creature that um um helped fly the millennium Falcon with um with um Chewbacca um there but um yeah I must admit I'd I'd only give it um four or five out of um ten <laughs> um for the porgs um actually no I, I thought the porgs were quite poor so I'd probably give them about a two out of ten so yeah. so the next two one point, no sorry two two point two point four out of ten for a porg there you go um so yes, the, the next the next animal the um the the uh, thala sirens were they on the same island in the in the movie was that a um cuz that's yes so um, and and basically i'm just trying to remember if there's any spoilers in that but no they they were just they just wanted to populate the the universe with with creatures rather than just being a, these panoramic shots where you would just see ocean etc um and yeah that they were one of the creatures that were um on that sort of um desolate um rock that was that skelly um island here yeah. they remind yeah. me of the, there was wasn't that um there a, a um a balloon that um was commissioned as an artwork to fly around canberra um Yes, yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, yes. the, um, um, the thalassirens um, give me a significant, um, you know, jog my memory as far as that goes. Yes, and um, there will be a link to this article for those who want to have a look at it at our, at our website, vetgurus.com. Um, the other creature there, the, the one creature there that I thought was quite groovy and, and I did enjoy was the um, the ice um um, ice animal there, the, the vulp techs, um, and they do pay a little bit of a um, more major part than those other creatures um, do. So there you go. Do, do, um, now you've a, just stopped reminding me. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've got a quick question for you. One of the things um, about uh, invented animals that I, um, particularly the Star Wars ones or ones that are in other movies, um, I really like the idea of the likelihood that they could be real, and and particularly the um, vulp techs. I struggle, I don't know, I don't know whether I can believe that in our 
world of physics and biology that um, that such a creature could evolve. Where you know the um, the others, I, I certainly the thalassirens or the the fathias, um, those things I could see possibly evolving, but maybe not so much. I think, yeah, that they certainly weren't. Um believable in that way but i suppose um sometimes if you have a creature that's so n- disbelievable unbelievable that um you sort of run with it a bit more easily um i think than um than than something that they try hard to make look like a, 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 a an animal that may exist that, that 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 there's no way that that won't you know um if you know what i'm <laughs> understand sort of what i'm saying there yeah so no it wasn't um yeah of all those ones it was certainly wasn't wasn't believable as far as um an actual creature that would exist yeah you want to be careful you yeah. want to be careful spaying it that's all i can say yeah, it'd be well, you, and you'd have to watch temperature control too while you're doing that. You don't want to put it on um, a, a um, hot pod, hot hot, um, hot, dog. Uh, hot dog warming pad. pad. Yeah, yeah, um, or else it won't be around for much longer. Yeah. Um, okay, so the next news story is mine, and I, uh, this one I just found one of these fascinating ones, and it's um, the Mekong region. Um, and this is another one from the Mother Nature Network that was reported earlier this month. The Mekong region reveals 115 new species. Um, and for those who don't know, the Greater Mekong region is 200 million acre area that encompasses southwest China, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. It's huge. Um, and in 2016, scientists found 115 new species. Um, and the World Wildlife Fund announced the discoveries in mid-December in 2017, so just over a month ago. And um, of those new species, they found 11 new amphibians, two fish, 11 reptiles, 88 plants and three mammals. Um, and incredibly enough, this brings the tally of the new species discovered in the region since 1997 to 2,524 so there's certainly lots of new species out there that um that um and there'll be a lot more i'm sure in in places like this that um are yet to be discovered um so it's pretty amazing that more than two new species a week and two and a half thousand in the past 20 years speaks to how incredibly important the greater mekong is to global biodiversity said um the stuart chapman the wwf greater mekong regional representative said in a statement about the new species um so so that's um, that's good, and then they do mention the 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 the, the threats to these um, species, and guess what? It's the sort of things that we'd we'd expect: mines, roads, dams, and illegal animal trade, and poaching um, to it. And WWF is working to try and um, delay that or halt it as much as they can. Um, so yeah, um, it was quite interesting. Um, I just I was just sort of blown away with the number of species that have been found in that region um, over the past you know twenty years or. Or, or in just in 2016. So I'm looking forward to seeing um, the report in 12 months' time when they report um, and tabulate all the animals that they've, or species they've discovered in 2017, which will, because they tend to take about a year to collate them and report the next lot. Yeah. Do you think so that there um, um, there's a number of um, biodiversity hotspots around the world where I think um, that uh, 
you know, taxonomists being what they are, um, lumpers or um, dividers, um, that there's some situations where these new species are, um, you know, uh, groups of animals peeled off from previous expe- uh, previous um, uh, previous species. Um, but I, my impression from um, the information about the Mekong is that that's not the case. A lot of these animals are like completely new to science and and not just um, uh, if you like taxonomically generated new species. I wonder how yeah, many places. Yeah, I, I think. Yep. Sorry, how many places? Um, well, um, I'm, I've I've just clicked onto the actual website for the great uh, the WWF um, um, Greater Mekong website, and I'll put a link to that um, as well in the show notes. Um, and the actual website address for those who don't want to go to our um, vetgurus.com website, it's greatermekong.panda.org is the website, and it um, summarises the species there. And there's certainly a, a lot of completely new species there. Um, and and one that I've found quite fascinating is probably about the second or third one on the uh, as you scroll down the the front page there, and that's the Vietnamese crocodile lizard, um, which um, is a medium lizard native to remote fresh freshwater habitats in South China and North Vietnam. Um, it was discovered um, in Vietnam in 2003, and then in 2006 they published that it has a separate um, subspecies there. So, um, um, so that's that's one of them there. But yeah, that, that they've got a good listing of them um, in there, and um, yeah, I'm sh- sure a fair number of them will be um, will be um, subspecies. But um, considering the the vast number of species they're reporting, not just animals but plants as well. I'm sure there's a great percentage of them or a great number of them that are completely new species, not just subspecies. Um, yeah, so there we go. Um, so our last news story, Mark, is, yeah, um, a little bit more depressing and that's about animal shelter workers that you want to chat about. Well, I found this um, uh, article um well, I don't know how they turn up on my um, feeds. This one's in Psychology Today, and that's not a um, a, uh, um, a website that I frequent, not by any stretch. But um, this one in particular talked about um, why animal shelters burn, why do animal shelter carers, workers burn out? Um, and I thought it was particularly um, pertinent because some of the the, um, the, the statements, some of the um, comments in there I felt were um, particularly pertinent um, and equally applicable to um, to veterinarians and veterinary nurses. Um, and the whole article starts with the premise that there are some people who, uh, that all people come to this work because they have a little bit of a calling to it, that um, it's not generally something that people um do unless they have a real passion for it. Um, and initially they talk about two groups of people, those that um, uh, that uh, come to it and, um, and get burnt out, that they become bitter and angry and um, that they go home at night and cry because, you know, um, they, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for many shelters. Um, this one talks about people in the U.S. Um, where they, over a course of a year, they're involved in over a thousand um, euthanasias of animals. And for people who come to such a, a work position, such a profession, to um, to make the life of pets and animals in general better, 
to be associated with that does take a um, a good deal of um, well um, uh, compromise, I suppose. Um, and then, but other people seem to cope with it um, uh, really well. And some of the research that was done suggested there were. Um, three sort of different paths that people would take in their professional lives as shelter workers um, that um, uh, that were all um, calling. They all um, uh, led to people um, filling what they felt was their destiny, um, but they had they arrived there in different ways, and the, where how they got there actually gave us a good indication of how whether they were going to be able to cope or not. And so the first one they called identity-oriented um, calling path, and this was one where people believed that they had a special gift when it came to working with animals, and they just needed to be with them. Um, and and almost um, predictably, early on, their idealism uh, began to clash with the harsh reality of shelter work, and in particular the you know, euthanasia of unwanted dog, dogs and cats and the behaviour of people who surrendered them. And pretty quickly these people became uh, got to the point where they asked why were they doing this and they'd become short-tempered and um, and they would be upset and um, get angry and, and often trigger conflicts with their co-workers and bosses because um, obviously the, that, uh, that outcome wasn't what they expected. Um, they... Almost invariably, those people would leave the, the um, shelter-related work but end up in other animal-related professions. The second path was the contribution path where, um, where people would, um, once again, they would um, believe they have a unique gift for relating for, to animals, but they felt less anger. They didn't feel that their identity was... Um, so tied into the outcomes for the animals, they just wanted um, to be able to make a contribution and uh, and and uh, and make a difference. And uh, they could reconcile to a certain extent um, the fact that they um, they uh, um, they might have to go through some of these horrible things to make life better for most of them. Um, but a lot of these would move into um, up the professional ladder into um, and contribute in terms of um, uh, bureaucracy and um, uh, administration. Um, and in this area, they would often um, find that um, it was much more difficult to contribute um, and, um, and they too would end up at a point where they would get into conflict and be unable to cope and after several years get out of a shelter and end up looking for jobs in other animal-related areas. And the only um, pathway that led to um, uh, occupational satisfaction um, were the, the, uh, the, the people who... Um, Still, they still there still was a chance that um, um, that there was the possibility of burnout. But um, these people uh, were passionate in their desire to help animals. Um, but these people didn't consider themselves particularly gifted or skilled when it came to relating to animals. Um, and as a consequence, researchers suggested that their more modest expectations 
made them better equipped to deal with the emotional challenges of shelter work. Um, and uh, I think this was the sort of take-home message for me that um, the, um, the people who felt called to um, uh, work in animal shelters and had a, a high emotional um, uh, investment in the process, um, they were the people who were least likely to stay in there. It was the people who had um, uh, a less high expectation and less um, identity with being an animal person that were often the most successful. A little bit of a paradox, I would have thought. And I think there's... So so do you think, Mark, that you, you could apply that to the veterinary industry generally as well? Say, for, for instance, in, employing veterinarians, that, that, that the su- successful um, pathway may be the one of those vets who, who don't see themselves as particularly gifted when they first graduate um, and, and they're the vets that um, will go on and be more successful or at least stay in the profession compared with somebody who, who jumps out of vet school into practice thinking that they know it all and um, become very dis- disillusioned and end up um, maybe becoming a GP um, instead. I had exactly the same thoughts myself when I read the article that I thought um, uh, that um, – that it, that, I mean, the research hasn't been done, but um, I'm, I'm always interested in these things that might explain why people do leave our profession um, and maybe the ones that um, start off with those very, very high expectations and um, investment and emotion about um, their connection with animals. Maybe, maybe they're less likely to end up being there over the long haul. Yes, yes. No, it was a... Um you did send me that article early today, and yeah, it was um, quite fascinating. And I know um, psychology today is not a not a bastion of um, journalism um, that it's that, um, and it's been been around for many years. Um, but um, I, I did quite enjoy that particular article. So thank you, Mark. I tell you what, I I I. I did just I did pick up another couple of articles that we'll um, talk about in news um, next week, and one of them will follow on very well from that. And that is um, the title of it is um, "Coping with Vet Shaming." So it's um, discussing um, um, how to cope um, as a vet when um, everybody tells you you are wrong. Um, you know, your clients come in and say, "I just um, um, you're wrong. I've just." Um, had a chat to Dr. Google and, um, you know, um, everything you say is incorrect. And, um, yeah, you, you may have been dealing with um, veterinary um, uh, reptile medicine for, for 30 years, but um, I've just bought my first reptile and I might know more than you. And how to cope with that sort of um, comment, it's quite a good article. Um, so I think it follows on quite well from that. So something to look forward to next week, Mark, um, for everybody. So, yeah. We'll go through that one next week. And I uh, have a, uh, actually, I was on a bit of a roll today. I found a, a, um, two or three other articles that um, might be of interest next week. And um, one, especially for you, Mark, that I'm not going to tell you about until um, next week. And um, yeah, you, you'll um, you'll know why it's for you when uh, next next week's podcast comes around. Um, so there we go. So this is um, Lucky 13, or Lucky for Some, um, as the title is um, of this podcast, our podcast number 13 and and mark and i thought for um for the main topic for this week we'll just have a general sort of discussion on 
lifespan of pets and um, we'll probably spend a little bit of time about talking about the lifespan of unusual pets that we spend so much time um, dealing with both of us and um, um, the longevity of our pets has certainly um, increased over the years and I think there's a few fallacies about how long some of these pets live for Mark so um, I might kick it off about um, talking a little bit about reptiles um, and or reptiles in the wild as well and um, a, a friend of mine who's a very good herpetologist and um, extremely experienced and um, is involved with the wildlife park, Greg, um, he said to me many, many years ago um, about the lifespan of saltwater crocodiles um, that he he personally um, has, has, has tracked down or nose of crocodiles where they've um, know the governance of a particular crocodile that's lived for um, close to um, you know 150 years or so and and he's he he said he wouldn't be surprised if at some stage they um, have have crocs that um, um, have been proven to last well over um, 200 years um, so I think some of these species that we think may be long lived are certainly longer lived than we we thought they were going um, had been um, and and I'm, I'm not just talking about the pet ones here and and one that I do know um, that is is definitely long lived is um, a, a patient of mine in the past and that's one of these land tortoises that um, I know um, the age of Hugo is at least um, I think he's turned 100 recently so um, and he was a um, an adult size um, Aladabran tortoise um, when he was um, acquired um, um, from the wild into a zoo so they don't know how old he was when he was first um, taken into um, captivity and um, he's been certainly around for at least two, um, 100 plus years so um, do you want to have a little bit of chat chat about the you know it's, what, what do you see as the average and I find it frustrating too because some of the common reptiles if we stick with reptiles that, that we see in practice um, our common python species here in Australia like the the, the um, diamond python carpet pythons etc if you try and look up um, average lifespans for them um, there's very little research out there and you'll get one report saying, look, the average lifespan of a carpet python uh, or subspecies may be 10 or 15 years and, and you'll, you'll, you'll talk to another long-term breeder or a, or a zoo and they will say, oh, no, um, 30 or 50 years is, 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 is what we'd say um, some of these species get to. So um, what's your sort of take on the the... The, the rubbery figures we have out there for some of these um, commonly um, kept pet reptiles, Mark, if we chat about that for a sec. Well, I, I thought this was particularly um, pertinent and insightful because I had the pleasure of talking to one of my clients today, um, Jason, shout out to Jason, who uh, has a fairly decent collection and he bought in one of his um, Breedles pythons, the central Australian species of um, of uh, carpet snake, and um, and uh, his python is um, twelve years old, um, and uh, and it is definitely um, showing. Well, we had a long discussion today about um, the likelihood that it had some serious metabolic disease. It uh, um, it uh, didn't look like it had an infectious illness, and um, and uh, and work up on previous cases that uh, Jason has brought me has revealed a, um, a number of cancers in um, in particularly in pythons um, as they get to this sort of age. So it does um, uh, does 
make me wonder about because uh, I've always thought that uh, the research that I have read makes me believe that between 20 and 30 years for one of these large pythons is probably a reasonable expectation of how long they can live. And we certainly see some of our captive animals get to that point, but um, but certainly we see a very large number get to double figures and then um, start to develop um, complicated diseases of old age and uh, often diseases that... Um, that they can't survive through. So it was interesting that um, of Jason's, uh, probably the last half a dozen animals, the last half a dozen snakes that I've seen of his in the, and he had a whole crop that he acquired at the same time. So they're all in that 10 to 15 year age group and um, they all have serious illness. Now that may mean that there's some husbandry factor in the way that Jason cares for them that's triggered a problem. Um, but um, but I, I, I do, I'm with you, I don't know that we have enough data to say with certainty these animals are going to live this long under these conditions. Yes, and, and I'd agree that I'd, I'd, I'd see a lot of the um, commonly kept pythons that are struggling from various illnesses when they are, yeah, between 10 and, 10 and 20 years of age. And I, I, personally, it, it would be an exceptional um, animal that lives above 20 regardless of what um, what I hear or see but I think overall hopefully we're, we're increasing the average lifespan of them but but the frustrating thing is there's very little um, published data out there for for the actual lifespan of them um, um, bearded dragons is probably the other one off the top of my head that I always um, find interesting as far as the potential lifespan and I, I always and it's a common question I get from clients is how long will my frog lizard rabbit guinea pig rat mouse live and um for bearded dragons i usually quote five to 15 is what i would say to them um i kept bearded dragons personally um for for many years and i think i gave them away to one of the local um teaching institutions when they were 12 years of age and they live for a few years um after that so i think we were lucky with those ones but um i i see a lot of bearded dragons that you know um that that struggle um when they get in towards or around the 10 year of age mark and you know i don't think i see too many that get any more than 12 or 13 or, or certainly 15 years of age um for those ones um um the that with the small mammals um just leading on from that rabbits so I, I i've certainly seen an increase in the average lifespan of the of uh, generally the of the rabbits that we see we I, I used to quote six to eight for an average um lifespan for a pet rabbit and these days i'd, I'd be saying eight to ten um we are seeing an increase in number of rabbits over 10 years of age it is a small percentage of the total rabbits we see but um it is increasing and and virtually all of those rabbits over 10 are showing signs of of age and and the typical sort of conditions we get are osteoarthritis conditions and also a lot of renal failure um rabbits chronic renal disease with those older rabbits um what are you finding with the um rabbits and the beardies mark very similar numbers, Brendan, and and I've got a um, we the, one of the outstanding rabbits that um, that uh, I, I um, we had as a, a patient um, over the entire course of its life. So I'm very confident to verify its age. Um, was a, a wild um, rabbit, a rabbit that had been picked up in the um, in the field as a kit, and um, and fortunately, uh, despite 
those orphan kits being difficult to rear. This one was uh, was uh, went well, um, and then um, and then was uh, maybe given more of a natural life, um, I suppose, and managed to dodge the uh, usual risks of um, Khaleesi and Mixo, and uh, and we euthanized that rabbit when it was 16 years old um, with renal disease. So um, they they certainly have um, significant potential. Um, I wonder whether domestication has um, robbed them of some of that potential um, and um, and maybe some of the husbandry that we, uh, you know, even today I was, uh, we've got excellent clients and um, highly dedicated, spend huge amounts of time and money and yet still we're battling to make sure they don't feed those rabbit mueslies and, um, and uh, um, the sorts of foods that predispose them to dental disease before they get to their fourth or fifth birthday. Yes, 16, gee, that's exceptional. I don't think I've seen a pet rabbit or any rabbit that gets to that to that age. Um, so that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I uh, saw a rabbit yesterday for a health check and vaccination and um, um, reading through the previous histories over the last couple of years, every time would be saying to them, um, your rabbit needs to lose weight, your rabbit needs to lose weight, and, and guess what, I weighed it and it had put on even more weight. And um, uh, the, the sorts of treats they're feeding their rabbit are um, lots of um, nuts and seeds and um um, lots of carrots um, for the treats and um, also has a, a decent sized bowl of a good quality um, pellet but um, you know they virtually just fill up this bowl full of the pellet um, it does get the hay and veggies as well but um, um, yeah I was tough on them again today I don't know whether it just falls on deaf ears but I said take away all the treats and if you want to offer a treat just offer a um, find a, a herb or a vegetable that um, it seems to like and offer that as a treat like a bas- basil coriander that sort of thing um, mint um, and make that the treat that you feed it and halve the amount straight away of the the pelleted food they feed to it but um, who knows it'll it'll come back in six months fatter again I think I I think you're just too gentle Brendan I think you're not nearly harsh enough with these clients I think sometimes you've got to um, impress upon them that they're going to lose their beloved pet several years earlier than they would otherwise as a direct result of the the um the way they're feeding them and and I don't know. Sometimes, I, I, maybe it's just my naturally harsh nature, and uh, <laughs> and sometimes I can't help but just be a little bit, I don't know, firm with people, um, emphasising that. And it's just, we talked about this with the rats. Um, it's definite. There's a definite correlation with uh, how uh, how heavy pet rats are and how quickly they succumb to um, those diseases of old age and. Um, and, and I don't think it's uh, an exaggeration to say that you can extend their life by 25 or 30% by, um, by ensuring that they're kept lean and fit. Yes. So what, um, what's the average lifespan you'd expect for a pet rat, Mark? Well, we usually, when people come in and they do exactly as, as you outlined before they ask us, we normally talk about um, between two and three years for most of our rats. Um, we have occasional rats that get up in towards four. I don't think I've ever seen one get over four, um, but, um, uh, but yeah, um, between 
two and three years would be what we'd normally expect to lead people to um, to feel they're going to get out of the, the companionship of their rat. Yeah, we um, probably similar. I mean, we see the odd one that gets close to four, and I have seen it um, several that have got over four. Um, but yeah, those those fat rats are certainly a bit of a worry. And I, I don't, can't remember whether I mentioned on that previous podcast. I think the f- fattest rat that I saw was nine hundred and eighty grams, so just under a kilogram. You know, that is a fat rat. Um, interestingly enough, there is some. Um, publications out there some published research of the average lifespan of 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 pet um, rats and mice and i am trying to recall what their um summary was it was a a decent retrospective study of pet um, rats and mice it wasn't laboratory rats and mice and i think um don't quote me but it was similar to this in that the average lifespan it was less than i thought it would be um so I do mention this to clients a lot. The average lifespan for the pet mice was around nine months of age and the average lifespan for the pet rats was was below 18 months of age. I think it was only about 12 to 14 months of age. So it wasn't, it wasn't um, as... as, as um, as much as what we thought and um, I may be out by a couple of months there with both but it was certainly less than what we thought and that was a decent published um, paper that was I think done in the US Um, yeah I may may have to correct myself next week if I pull out that paper but yeah so that's our pet rats now with the pet birdies Mark tell me about the if I come into your clinic and um, with a let's talk about the common ones a a budriga or a um, um, what's probably a good common um, 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 other parrot species that, that you'd be seen or that would be seen well, online? What's well, the average lifespan? What's the average lifespan of a pet chicken, a chook, as we call them in Australia? They, they, the, they're all great questions. And starting with budgerigars, they're probably the one that um, most frequently we get asked about how long they're likely to live. And I think there is some uh, pretty good sound research which uh, looks at uh, the wild budgerigars. Um, and um, and I think that uh, in the wild there, you know, between five and six years is their allotted time in the desert. Um, but we certainly see our um, domestic budgerigars have the potential to get a long way past that and uh and often up into um uh you know double digits 12 or 13 years i think the key thing we convey to our um, budgerigar clients is that um while they our um, domestic budgerigar may live much longer than their wild ancestors their life cycle is very similar so um by the time they get to three or four, they are old birds and they stay old birds for if they're going to make it to 12 or 13 for the next decade. Um, and so that explains, in our mind, the the, um, the relatively high frequency of tumours and um, diseases of old age in these birds because um, they still seem to follow that pattern of, um, of uh, life cycle, but they just have a very extended geriatric period. Now, cockatiels, yes. go on, you were going to say, Brendan? No, go ahead, cockatiels. Um, our cockatiels, uh, generally, we've got a couple. I've actually got one in hospital at the moment that boards with us on a regular basis, um, and um, this bird is uh, blind and has a, a cage set up for it um, uh, with very specific arrangements of the the uh, uh, food containers and the, the uh, perches are, are broad and flat, 
Um, and this bird's 22 years old um, and, uh, and doesn't look like leaving us anytime soon. Um, but more commonly, we generally say to people that our uh, cockatiels are likely to um, be between about 8 and 12 years of age uh, when they um, uh, have problems that uh, lead them to be no longer with us. Yes. Um, jumping around again, um, our long-lived turtles, um, what do you say to a client who brings in an eastern long-necked turtle um, and they say, how long is this little fella going to live for? Well, this breaks my heart, Brendan, because I think it's a pretty safe thing to say that in the wild um, they have the potential to make a fairly substantial life for themselves, maybe three or four decades. But unfortunately, as you well know, the the, uh, the care of our um, our captive turtles um, isn't well. The, their husbandry and care isn't as well understood as might be the case, and um, and we see an awful large number of our turtles pass away within four or five years. Um, but I don't think that reflects their natural lifespan as much as their captive lifespan under unfavourable conditions. And I think also the unfortunate thing is that some of those, you know, some things are set in stone by the, the husbandry of the parents, the quality of the eggs they lay, and the first few weeks of the baby turtle's life. And then someone who acquires them at you know, a couple of months of age has an animal that's already destined to not be with us um, in only three or four years rather than their possible several decades. Um, thinking as you were talking there, Mark, I, I, I think the turtles that I have seen that have um, have been in families for decades um, and been passed down generation to generation and we see um, you know one or two of those um, turtles every year um, I think the majority of them have been ones that were wild caught turtles that they certainly yes. weren't raised when they were um, from, from from hatchlings in captivity, and they were captured as a as a wild caught animal and then go on to live many decades after that. And I think the one I saw um, this year was at least sixty years of age, you know, um, and they'd caught it as a the grandfather had caught it um, as a as a young boy, um, and had been passed from grandfather to you know, um, son or daughter and then, then to the um, family below that. Yeah, so, yeah, no, um, uh, spot on. I agree totally with what you say with that. Um, so, yeah, lifespan. So, yeah, if only we'd live to um, 200s um, as well, um, Mark. So, you know, I'm hoping to get to 100 is the plan with me and um, I think one of the consultants on on VIN, um, their tagline is, um, um, I, I, I hope to live to 200, so far so good, um, is, their, is their quote for it. So um, I, I think I can see that as well. Um, yeah, um, and um, the quote following on from that that I always um, love is Spike Milligan, the, um, the British um, comedian who's um, well and truly dead and buried now. Um, he always said um, he wanted to um, 
have written on his tombstone, which I think he ended up um, having been put on his tombstone, um, was the words, um, I told you I was ill. Um, and that's what they ended up putting on his tombstone. Um, so I like it. Um, yeah. Which reminds me of one other quote, Mark. I can go on all night here. Um, <laughs> is um, a very famous Woody Allen quote. Um, and, and I agree totally with what he had to say. And that's, um, um, I can't wait to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, I agree. Um, I agree. I'm really interested to find out when I what happens when I die. Probably not much, apart from a, a big party um, that that um, will be undertaken by my family or some friends to say um, see you later. Um, and I think it's see you later. That the, the um, sound has just kicked in, hasn't it, Mark? So um, I think it's time to say goodbye to all our listeners. So thanks for listening and. Um, Please um, recommend us to your friends, your veterinary college and and, um, vet um, students and veterinary nurses um, and technicians and subscribe and um, we'll see you all next week and thanks for listening.